0: You're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated partnership. Hi everyone, my name is Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack Curling Podcast. This week on the podcast we catch up with 2006 Olympic gold medalist Brad Gushu who recently earned a second trip to the Olympics at the Canadian Olympic Trials in Saskatoon. Speaking of Olympians, we are then joined by Eve Muirhead and Bruce Mowat of Scotland who joined me a few days after leading their respective teams to titles at the European Championships in Lillehammer, Norway. Our final guest this week is 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN broadcaster Cheryl Bernard, who joined me to discuss the Canadian Olympic trials after spending 10 days in Saskatoon watching and calling the action from the TSN broadcast booth. Before moving on to our first guest of the week, I wanted to touch briefly on the recent announcement that Team Botcher has decided to move on this season without Darren Moulding. A lot has already been said about this story. Brendan and Darren have, all, have been all over the media over the past couple of days to discuss the situations themselves from their perspectives. And I'm not going to add too much except to say that I'm still not clear on why the breakup had to happen in December in the final year of the Olympic cycle on a team that essentially only has two other events to play before defending their title at a home homebrier in Lethbridge, Alberta are already several teams that participated in the trials that have quietly decided to split up at the end of the season. It happens at the end of every quadrennial, and typically there's only one or two teams that play in the trials that survive the start of the next cycle. Yet the players will continue to compete together and fulfill the commitments they had with their teams until the end of this season. The way the Botcher split was handled certainly leaves me with the impression that this split was much more personal than it was business. And truth be told, it was handled poorly by Team Botcher. Here's hoping that Brandon learns from the experience and that all four members of the team find themselves on successful rinks in the next cycle. My first guest this week is Brad Gush, Join me to discuss his recent victory at the Canadian Olympic Trials, where he and his team earned the right to represent Canada at the Winter Olympics for a second time. Brad, the obvious first question is, how did it feel right at the end of the trials final when you first realized that you were going to be an Olympian for the second time?
1: Oh, there's lots of emotions. I think excitement, uh, relief, shock. I think obviously excited to win. We were kind of relieved at the pressure of the of the Olympic trials, and and uh, that was kind of gone. Uh, and then shock. I, I was certainly expecting that shot to be made, and and I had prepared myself to 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 focus on the eleventh end, and and uh, eventually having probably a draw of the forefoot to win the game. So when the the rock rolled out and I realized we would won, I was I was surprised, but Uh, You know, the emotions that run through your your body, it's hard to articulate uh, in in the words when you, uh, you know, you're that focused for that long and there's something that big at stake and and you end up on the right side of it. Uh, It feels pretty darn good.
0: Now, Brett, I'm wondering if the fact that you had won the trials before perhaps helped you manage the week a little bit better, especially after it became clear that your team was playing so well. Or does having won the trials before perhaps even make it harder on a team because you've been to an Olympics, you know what that feels like, and you want to get back so bad?
1: No, I I, I think it it, it can help and it can hurt. I I think it really comes down to perspective. And, and, you know, you look at the women's side, and, and Rachel certainly Struggled, but, you know, she had won it just four years ago. So, uh, and then a, a team like ours and Brad and Kevin, you know, the last three three teams that are still playing, I guess, uh, on the men's side, all, all made the playoffs. So, obviously, it, it benefited there. Um, so, it can help, can hurt. I think our, our team had a, a really great perspective uh, that allowed us to kind of perform under that pressure where, you know what, if we didn't win this week or this past week, uh, it wasn't the end of the world. Uh, but it still meant the world to us. Like we wanted to win, but uh, you know it wasn't life or death, and and uh, you know that takes a little bit of the edge off pressure and pressure-wise, and you can go out and play to your you know your ability. I think when you you start to put too much emphasis on the Olympic Trials and, and make it too big in your mind, you know it can become a little bit overwhelming and lead to you know and and an excess amount of uh, pressure and. and you know, when you get the, that pressure, then the adrenaline pumps into your body and everything changes.
0: Now, Brad, your schedule at the trials was front-loaded. How reassuring was it for you to get off to such a good start against the other teams that were viewed by many as being among the favorites to represent Canada in Beijing?
1: Yeah, we had what I felt was, was probably the worst draw. You know, we had the top four seeds right off the start uh, with Botcher and, and then Cooey and and Jacobs and Epping. Um, so we knew our fate was gonna be kinda of determined really in the first four games. If if we could get through those four games at worst, two and two, like that keeps us in, in the hunt. But if you, you come through at three and one or four and oh, boys you're you're in pretty good shape. And uh, when we got through that stretch at four and oh, we we're like, okay, this is in our hands now, at least uh, you know, getting to the the bite of the final. And, um, you know, it, it's a tough start. But then even when you get through that, then you still have the daunting task of, of playing Dunstone, in Horgan, and McEwen. So it didn't, it didn't get easier. But uh, I think the start plays a big factor. And, you know, you look at a team like Botcher who, who got off to a slow start, and then it was, it's, hard to, it's a hard uphill battle when, when you lose your first couple of games because you just know that, you know, you don't have any leeway. And that builds on that pressure that I talked about earlier, which makes it a little bit more of a challenge to perform up to your ability.
0: Brad, when you and I chatted uh, 40 from the Hack Trials preview show, you mentioned that one of the motivating factors for you and Mark Nichols at the trials this year was to help Brett Gallant and Jeff Walker qualify for the Olympics for the first time. Now, I know that they had both been to the trials in 2017 with you and Mark, but I'm just wondering if you had any kind of uh, conversations with Brett and Jeff uh, prior to the trials and the lead-up to the event to help them walk their way through what it takes to not only reach the playoffs, but to get to the final and win that Olympic spot and I'm also wondering how proud you were of the two of them and how they stepped up throughout the week as they usually do in big events but this time with all the trials pressures added to you know the typical pressure at a brier at a grand slam or even at a world championship yeah
1: you know what I, I I don't think we did too much to be quite honest uh you know four years ago when we played the trials we played really well and, and we lost a semifinal to a you know a super hot Mike McEwen. And uh, we could have easily come out of that one with with the championship had you know uh, a shot here or there went the other way uh, so I knew I knew they had the capacity to play well under that sort of pressure. I think what we kind of emphasized a little bit uh, once we got to the final um, we knew the pressure was there we had a day off so there's lots of time to, to think about what can happen if you win or lose the final and you know we had discussed about just giving each other the freedom to kind of it's okay to let your mind wander and, and, you know, let it happen for a minute or two, but then kind of push it aside and, and move on to something else. I think what happens when, when teams get into that situation is the mind wanders and then you kind of start digging down that rabbit hole and, and you end up developing this whole narrative, you know, for, for an hour of what could happen if we win or lose. Uh, but if you accept the, the fact that your mind is going gonna, gonna to go to thoughts about if you win or and it's going to go to thoughts about you lose, but you kind of you let it happen, and then after a few minutes you, you regroup and distract yourself and, and get on to something else and not, not beat yourself up because you're thinking about it because, uh, you know, that doesn't help either. So that's something we discussed. Uh, whether they did it or not, I'm not sure, but I know that was, you know, something I tried to, tried to focus on the last couple of days and, and not beat myself up uh, about thinking ahead.
0: Now, Brett, I've got to ask you, I know that uh, players and teams are focused on the stuff, uh, on their process and on the stuff that they can control. That said, I'm wondering if you noticed at any point that Mike McEwen and his team had gotten off to a really good start at the trials and perhaps have thought to yourself, oh no, not this again, you know, remembering the fact that you had played really well in 2017 only only to run into a buzzsaw, basically, in Mike McCune and the, in the semifinal in Ottawa. I believe he threw uh, 98% against you uh, in that game uh, to uh, earn his way to the final against Team Cooey.
1: Yeah, no, I, you think about it. Um, you try not to, again, dwell on it, but if you, if you think about it, you kind of let that thought go and, and kind of move on. And, and certainly there were, there were times, uh, you know, when we lost to uh, in there on, on Wednesday night, we, we knew if we won that game, then our, our game against Oregon would decide, uh, you know, the buy to the final. And then all of a sudden we, we lose that game, uh, beat Horgan and then we have to face Mike McHughan for the <laughs> to the final. And, and, and those guys were probably playing as good as I've seen them in, in quite some time. And, and uh, certainly that thought did go back where, you know, if Mike goes out and throws 97 or 98% against us again, um, <laughs> you know, it may not end up the way we want. But we had a phenomenal game against Mike on, on Friday night and fortunately came out on the right side and got that bye to the final.
0: And now, Brett, I have a two-part question for you on the 48-hour period between the time you clinched the spot in the final and the game itself. What did you and the team do to occupy your time on the Saturday and the Sunday?
1: Um, so, yeah, on, on the first part, you know, what did we, what did we do? For us, we, we tried to make it as normal a day as possible. Uh, we kind of stayed stuck into the routine of what we did all week and we had lunch together um i went out for a walk and we had supper together you know we we went to practice on on saturday as well and and for me personally saturday was an easy day you know i didn't feel any of the nerves i was super relaxed felt really comfortable and confident in the position we were in and actually enjoyed you know the day of not playing the game Uh, Sunday was a bit more of a challenge, you know, I woke up and and all of a sudden my body felt different and and my mind was a little bit more active and I knew that was going to be the case having gone through it 16 years ago and um, you know, I I felt that way for 72 hours back then uh, because we had, uh, you know, extra time, three days uh, to think about it but I, again, I just tried not to dwell on the fact that I was thinking about it and,
0: uh, you know, distract yourself a little bit but you know, it was certainly okay with, uh, with me thinking about it. And in the second part of my question, I'm wondering whether you were a little bit concerned that your team might lose its groove, as it were, if you were off the ice for that long of a stretch, when you'd been playing so well all week.
1: Uh, not really, to be honest. I, you know, I, I didn't feel like we played our, our absolute best, so I didn't feel like we were, like, totally in the zone. So, um, but when you're, when you're in that zone, certainly those, those feelings can, can happen because it, it can be so fleeting when, you, when you're playing like that. But, you know, we were playing solid, but not spectacular. I, I, I think we, we were able to manage a lot of the games, so I wasn't concerned about that. For me personally, the uh, you know, that extra day off was, was wonderful. I, I got some physical therapy done on, on Saturday and felt a little bit better on Sunday. Jeff did the same thing, so... I think it was a positive, but it can be a negative and that's sometimes when you you know you get into the, some of these events that those thoughts can go through your mind. I, I remember we played in, in Regina and we were just we were in the zone and, and that was a worry that you know the, the extra time off could uh, could get you away from that but um, we didn't have those thoughts or at least it didn't come up in our, our conversation or, or in my thoughts at any point during those two days.
0: Now just a few hours before the men's final Brett Gallant had to watch his fiancee Jocelyn uh, Peterman uh, compete in an intense women's final that was decided in an extra end. I realize you can't speak for Brett uh, but from your perspective Brad how did he manage that situation and were you in any way concerned that he might be emotionally drained just a few short hours before the biggest game of his life? Yeah
1: so there's two parts to this that that I'll kind of touch on. Number one we have plan for this well in advance, and, and we had asked Brett to develop a plan that if, if Jocelyn got to the final and we were in the final, like how is that going to be handled? And, and essentially, you know, Jocelyn's parents were there to support her, win or lose, and, and once the game was over, Brett was was going to focus on his game, So he wasn't going to be that, you know, that necessarily that emotional crutch that he, he would like to be in that situation because he had, you know, he had work to do essentially. Um, and as far as him watching the game, whether – whether it was on TV or, or whether it was online, like it's, it's impossible for, for someone that uh, when you love someone to, to not follow along and, and not feel those emotions. So we knew that was going to happen, you know, inevitably. I, I think the key for us was once that game was over, um, you know, it wasn't a huge amount of turnaround until our game. But, you know, it was important that he put himself in a position to be as ready as he could be. And, and I think the planning process that we put in place uh, before the event started actually was, was executed like, quite well and allowed Brett to, you know, to be as good as he could be. Um, I'm glad it was him in that situation and not me because that's, you know, it's, it's such a challenge, but he, you know, he played well. He handled it great and uh, pretty pretty darn cool that, uh, you know, fiancé, two fiancés or how however you say that, <laughs> are, uh, are going to the Olympics together. That's, uh, you know, probably the first and last time that's going to happen
0: in sports. Now some people referred to the men's final at the trials as a bit of a defensive struggle, mostly because of the low score. As someone who follows the sport closely, that kind of take frustrates me on occasion, Brad, because, you know, sometimes games are low scoring because everyone's making their shots. I think people underestimate just how difficult it can be to generate offense in a game when both teams are executing so well and the margins of error are so slim and that neither team is willing to necessarily take that big chance that might uh, earn them a three or a four ender but also perhaps even force them to give up a three or four ender
1: yeah it it is slim and, and it wasn't it wasn't like both teams went out there with the intentions of being
0: super defensive I would say it
1: was probably quite the contrary. Um, you know, we, we went aggressive in the first couple of shots and nothing really set up perfect for us and, and nothing really set up perfect for, for Brad. And, and I think, you know, you don't want to throw it up, you know, your Olympic chances all into one end. And I think we both probably bailed a shot earlier than maybe we would in, in a normal round-robin game. Um, and then we executed well so that, you know, you'd make those run backs or those double takeouts and, and things would get clear pretty quick. But you know, to me, it was more of a strategic battle and, and a timing battle than, you know, a defensive battle. You know, I was, for, for us, I, I could tell that they were they were just as tight as, as we were and, and they weren't going to, you know, go that extra, extra bit aggressive. So I felt, you know, if we kept it a little bit more simple, especially later in the end, you know, we could probably control the game and, and maybe come up, you know, come home with the hammer, whether we were one down with the hammer or tied up with the hammer. That was kind of my thought process and, you know, an opportunity open up in the ninth end to, to take a deuce. And, you know, I love I love being two up coming home. Um, you know, I, I think it's just as good, if not better, as, as being tied up coming home with the hammer. So uh, when we had that opportunity – you know, we, we pounced on it and, and uh, things worked out for us.
0: Now, Brett, I've got to ask you about the performance of your third, Mark Nichols, who quietly goes about his business and uh, often comes up so big in the important games, like he did in the trials final in Saskatoon.
1: Yeah, I know he's he's a big game player. There's there's no doubt about that. He's uh, you know he's played well more times than than I can count in in those big games. And, and you know the first couple times you can you could probably say, geez. He's, his timing's really good, but, you know, when you start to see it as much as uh, as what we have with Mark, you know, there's, there's probably something extra that he has. And, um, you know, he's, he's a special player and certainly proud of his performance. He's, he's played really good this season, actually, um, you know, as, as good as I've seen him in, in quite a few years. So he's on a roll. Hopefully he can continue that for a couple more months.
0: Now Brad, I know that you're not just an elite curler, you're also a big fan of the sport. Uh, how impressive was it to watch Jen Jones step up and play so well at the trials and earn a second trip to the Olympics after what had been a couple of disappointing seasons for a player that many consider to be the greatest women's player ever?
1: Yeah, no, there, there's no doubt that she she is one of the the best female, if not the best female to ever play the game. And um, Yeah, she's had her struggles over the last couple of years, but uh, there was nobody on our team that doubted that she'd be around at the end of the week. I think you know, the Olympic trials or or the chance to go to the Olympics, you know, was going to bring the best out of Jen. And and she has a pretty good weapon there in in Caitlin. And uh, Caitlin's proven, you know, her merit uh, over the last couple Olympic trials with uh, whether it's the mixed doubles or or, uh, the women's, you know, she played spectacular as well. And um, yeah, you talk about Mark Nichols being a a big game player, you know, Caitlin and and Jen are, are the same on the women's side. They seem to, seem to play even better when the pressure gets increased when some of the you know the other players their their games go down and uh, there's no bigger pressure matches than at the olympic trials and and they uh they play quite well
0: now brad with all of the pressure and tension that comes uh with competing at an olympic trials is it fair to say that you know, for most of the participants, uh, when the trials end, they're kind of, uh, they're basically overwhelmed with a feeling of relief that it's over. Obviously, a team like yours that won it will have uh, been pleased to have won it. And those that didn't perform as well as they wanted to will be a little bit disappointed. But I kind of get the sense from having spoken to you and a lot of other players that once the trials are done, there's more than anything else uh, for most of the players is a sense of relief that the one big event that they had been focused on for four years was now over
1: yeah it's um you know as i mentioned earlier it, it's almost as much relief as it is excitement and and for us you know shock that uh, just as we were we were ready to play the last end you know all, all of the pressure that you have built up all all week the anxiety the stress the the tension all kind of gets relieved and, and it's it's so exciting and the fact that you know you get to take part in a in a lifelong dream and you know, for mark and i to get to do it again uh 16 years after the first time we did it, it it's pretty darn special and, and it's something we're gonna you know that we're gonna cherish over the next couple months this whole process that we're going through right now and and uh you know even even the olympic experience just taking as much as we can try and slow things down because you know these next couple months are going to go by fast and and uh you know create some memories hopefully make some shots and and, and see what happens but you know if we do that and do what we've been doing for the last couple of years, you know, we'll give ourselves a good chance of being around at the end of the week at the
0: Olympics. And finally, Brad, when we spoke prior to the trials, you mentioned that one of the reasons why you were looking forward to earning a second trip to the Olympics was because it would give you a chance to share it with your daughters, who had not been born yet when you went to the 2006 Olympics in Torino. Tell me a little bit about that first conversation, Brad, with your kids not long after the end of the trials final, and how much you're looking forward to sharing this Olympic journey with them, even if they might not be able to cheer you on from the stands in Beijing.
1: Yeah, that's, that's kind of was the most special part when I seen them at the airport when I got home and how excited they are. Um, you know, they're, they're proud as peacocks going into school, and, uh, you know, they're, they get announced that their dad's going to the Olympics, and they've already gone out and spent an absolute fortune at Lululemon getting all the Canada gear. so uh, they're, uh, they're 100% into it. It's, you know, it's not the dream that we had thought where they could come over to, to Beijing and experience the, the Olympics in person because uh, there's no foreign travelers uh, allowed at the Olympics. Uh, but they're going to get to the, the follow me through the next couple months in the process that we're going to be going through, and they're obviously going to be watching every game on TV and, and get to experience what we, we, we experienced in the aftermath. So uh, they're going to have a wonderful couple months just like our, we are, and, and I know Mark and I are going to make every effort to, to keep the kids involved as much as possible. So, you know, when they get our age, they're going to remember – you know, their dad going through this Olympic process. And uh, that's going to be a special memory for them. And, you know, it kind of shows shows how much uh, kind of the, the I guess, the the fruits of our labor, how much we've, or how hard we've worked over the last couple of years and, you know, how it's paid off in this opportunity. So, you know, a great lesson for them. And, and as, a, as a parent, it's something I think uh, everybody strives to, to show their kids. Oh,
0: Next is a very rare occurrence on from the hack with two guests at the same time. I was recently joined by Eve Muirhead and Bruce Mowat of Scotland to discuss their respective victories at the European Championships and to discuss the upcoming Olympics in Beijing. Eve, we're speaking a few days following your win at the European Championship uh, after what had been a roller coaster couple of seasons for you and your team. How satisfying was it for you to come away from the Euros in Lillehammer with your third European title?
2: Yeah, you're right. It has been um, a bit of a roller coaster and it has been a while since I was was on top of the podium. And, and that made the win at the European Championships extra special for, for me and my team. And not just for me, like my team, for them, it was their first gold medal at the European Championships. For Millie and Hayley, it was their first appearance that they were at the European Championships. So for all of us, it was a very special occasion the last few years, yeah they have been, they have been a roller coaster, obviously the COVID and the pandemic um, put a bit of, of a halt to everything um, it kind of it threw things off a little bit. Um, but do you know what we, we've come back we've come back stronger and I'd like to think I'm in, I'm in one of the best shapes um, I have been, and I think hopefully um, it puts us in good stead for, for the Olympic qualifier in a few weeks' time.
0: Now if you're just a few years removed from a serious injury and surgery uh, it must feel reassuring to be back to a point where you can not only physically compete but also get back to the top of the podium which was a familiar spot for you just a few short seasons ago.
2: Yeah like um, I had the the hip surgery a few years ago now and... um it's It's gone well like i am still not hundred percent within my hip, but it's it's bearable to be able to play and it's manageable and I think like over the, the last couple of years, that's been the most important thing is to to figure out what to do to allow me to manage it and allow me to curl the best I can. So overall I would say um I am dealing with it with it very well. We work very closely with our, our physiotherapists and, and doctors and things and um yeah, like I, I can't complain about it one bit right now. Like it, it does at the end of a, a long championships like I do need a few days rest, but I think everyone needs a few days rest, don't they? So um yeah, like as I said, I think um I'm in I'm in good shape just now and um I'm I'm managing my injury very well, I would say.
0: As for your team, Bruce, uh, you guys came away with your second European Championship uh, in Lillehammer. Despite the fact that you were certainly on form during the bubble last spring and you showed good form again earlier this season, it had to feel good with the Olympics just around the corner to play well and be quite dominant in an event as important as the European Championship.
3: Well, yeah, as you were saying there, we've had quite a nice run of success um, since the bubble in Calgary. Uh, what must have been April, I guess. So it's quite a while ago, but we've been playing really well and we've just been um, trying to, you know, focus on the championships that are coming up this year because they're leading into the Olympics and uh, the Europeans was our last championship before the Olympics. So we really put quite a bit of pressure on ourselves to uh, hopefully perform. And when we got there, we relaxed into the event pretty well. We uh, started off with a really good win against Sweden, which kind of just helped with uh, any kind of pre-event nerves. And then we just kind of picked our standard, our standard of play was just um, really high for the whole week. And then it, it, I think we went to 110 in. So that's an amazing uh, kind of thing for us to kind of realise how well we were playing. And um, we're obviously absolutely buzzing to have another European title under our belts.
0: Now, Bruce, a lot has been made about how your team made the best of a bad situation during the pandemic by putting in a lot of time at the gym and on the ice to help your team improve both physically and technically. Can you walk us through that journey a little? Because it certainly looks like it's paid a high dividends for you and your team, considering all the success you had both in the bubble and early this season.
3: We're Yeah, we're really fortunate. We had um, a lot of support from uh, the likes of like, British Curling, Scottish Institute of Sport and UK Sport. Uh, they funded us uh, throughout the pandemic, so we were still able to train. Um, eventually, after like the first lockdown in Scotland, we were back on the ice. Uh, I think that was around about uh, August, maybe even a wee bit earlier. So we were um, still training a lot. Uh, we then started to have some kind of internal events within uh, the British curling program. So we were playing against uh, the likes of Team White, Team Patterson, uh, team Bryce and team Craig so we played a lot of games against like uh, kind of similar opposition and uh, we were still trying to keep ourselves competition ready for uh, that opportunity that we ended up getting uh, at the bubble and um, so we had a lot of kind of games under our belt and a lot of training and it actually like as much as the pandemic kind of sucked for everyone we probably trained more than we would have if we were traveling to Canada and having to deal with jet lag and all those kind of things. So we we felt like it, it kind of benefited our team and um, the success that we've had in the last kind of four or five months is kind of showing that uh, we're able to kind of continue that after the uh, pandemic. As much as it's still kind of here, It's uh, we're back to traveling. So it's nice to see that we're still able to maintain that.
0: Now Eve, many eyebrows were raised in the curling community earlier this season when your National Federation decided to rotate players among the top two women's teams in the country. I'm assuming you were consulted before this decision was made and was wondering if you could walk us through the process and how well it seems to have worked so far for your team in particular.
2: Yeah, so so British Curling took the approach that that there would be a squad system. So there was nine athletes selected for the squad, and um, we competed as a, a squad in as many event, events as we can we could. Um, just like what Bruce said, we were lucky enough during the summer to to get quite a lot of training in. So so that was split up with with training with different players, different coaches, just to try and work out best combinations. And then when the competition season did start um we were we were put in set teams for that event and then obviously the, the coaches Dave Murdoch um had the decision team um head coach who who the, the chosen five were going to be so I do think the squad system worked very well for us. Um I think it allowed everybody to fight for their own positions. I think it made everybody realise that they had to work hard and they had to, to prove themselves as an individual, but also prove themselves as a team player when they, were in, when they were put in teams. So as I said, I think it worked well. And I think it's it shown that, that the five athletes selected were the right five athletes going by the, the results we've had. Um, and yeah, like who knows what approach they will take in the future. But I do believe that, that this approach has worked at this time.
0: Now, if both Ailey Duff and Millie Smith will be new names to most casual curling fans. Can you tell us a little bit more about the two new players on your team at the Europeans, especially Haley Duff, who played lead for you in Little Hummer and played quite well by all accounts?
2: Yeah, well, we'll start with Haley Duff. Um I'll be, I'll be honest, when she was named into the squad, like I was surprised because she hasn't been a podium athlete um yet and um Haley has has come through. She's proven herself to be very very consistent. She's proven herself to be a very good team player and now she's proven herself to be one of the best leads in the world. And um I am so proud of the way she has dealt with it all. Um she's kind of come in like under the radar as such, and she she's turned out to be, as I say, one of the the best leads, um, the best leads out there. So very very proud, and I do. She is only she's twenty four, and she's got years ahead of her. And um, I just like the way I can pass on a lot of experience to her. Um, and and as I say, she played well. She played every every game out at the Europeans, and um, her first major ladies' event. Um, representing Scotland to come away with a gold medal is, is pretty, it's pretty phenomenal really, isn't it? And, um, Millie Smith as well, she was the, the alternate. She did get a couple a couple ends in um, and it's exactly the same for, for Millie. Like she has been to the World Ladies before, but this is her first um, our first gold medal at an, a major international event and she also has has worked very, very hard and um, people know the surname Smith. Um, she's got obviously Dave Smith, her her dad and, and Kyle and Cammy are brothers, like they're they're a right curling family. So um she's she's one of one of the athletes that have got a lot of talent and um again I'm, I'm very proud of Millie the way she's she's come through the whole squad system as well and um is, is really is really proven herself to be to be a very good curler.
0: Now, Bruce, as you know, the Canadian Olympic trials were on at the same time as the Europeans, and there's been a lot of talk uh, in Canada about potentially switching the Canadian trials to an earlier date so that the winners have more time to prepare for the Olympics. As someone who got selected by their federation in the late summer, I believe, uh, how much does that additional time help you to tweak your schedule so that you can be in peak form for the start of the Olympic Games?
3: So we actually found out... Uh, late September so it wasn't it didn't feel like it was that long ago actually but okay uh, what we've kind of well as much as we weren't told that we were the team we kind of were like well the success we had uh, hopefully means that we're the team so we're trying to get into that mentality a bit earlier than we necessarily knew Uh, but I think what we were uh, trying to plan was like our season around the Olympics just because it's Um, obviously the kind of pinnacle of our season for this year and uh, we're going to want to be playing the best when we get there Uh, but yeah unfortunately we didn't know over summer it was more kind of I think we found out when we were in Basel just before we came out to the first slam
0: now, Eve, your work is uh, not done when it comes to qualifying for the Olympics. Uh, you now have to travel to the Netherlands for the final Olympic qualifier. How difficult might it be to achieve peak form again against some quality teams in the Netherlands, such a short time after an important victory at the Euros in Lillehammer?
2: Yeah, like, of, of course, there's, there's a lot of pressure, isn't there? Um, there's a lot of pressure for, for us to, to get that spot for Great Britain at Olympic Games. But... We can't think too much about that. I think we need to focus on on every day um, and every match, and especially this next week before we head out to, to the Netherlands, because this is a time for us to really recharge. It's a time for us just to smoke, focus on, on the very small things to be better, to be better than we were at the Europeans. And, um, of course, um, as you say, we'll have a lot of eyes on us, um, but... We can only do the best we can. I believe we've got a very strong, a strong team. Um, we're all playing very well, and um, of course, if you knew how to peak at the right time, everyone would do that, wouldn't they? So we've just got to hope that the way we planned our season, the way um, the way we've we've approached our competition schedule, has been right. And I really am very positive about it, and I do think. Um, that, that hopefully everything will go well out in Netherlands um, and let's hope we are on the plane to, to Beijing 2022.
0: If you've represented uh, Great Britain at the Olympics on three occasions already, what type of advice might you be sharing with Bruce and the boys as they prepare for their first games in Beijing?
2: Yeah, like I, I'm very lucky to have been to to three Olympic Games, and it hasn't come without a lot of very hard work. And um, I'm, I'm not sure Bruce and the boys need an awful lot of advice from me. Like those boys are are the best team in the world by by a long way, I believe, right now. And um, watching them out in Lilyhammer at the, at the Europeans, it, it was just it was just it was unbelievable watching. To be honest, like everything um, everything those guys are doing is is just showing off like their their hard work they've they've put in over the over the months and. Um, of course, the Olympic Games is the Olympic Games, and there's nothing there's nothing that you can can do to to change that within the environment. But you have to you have to enjoy it. You have to to be able to switch on and off. I think that's very important that um, you you do manage to switch off and and do enjoy the environment. But then again, when it comes to game time, it's it, that's a chance to, that's a chance to kind of that's a chance to switch on and and just be like you are at, at every slam, every every major event. But but as I say, I think these boys are in in very very good shape and Bruce will have the the mixed doubles the the week before, and I only think that's that's a good thing to to get into the flow of things and and then straight into the the team of.
0: Event. Eve, i'm guessing you did not get uh, much time to watch the canadian olympic trials since they took place at the same time as the euros as we mentioned a little bit earlier but as an elite curler i'm wondering if you've ever dreamt of playing in an intense event like the canadian trials with the big crowds and all the tension that comes with it
2: you'll you always look at the Olympic trials and it's an event that, that you always want to go to. And it's on my bucket list to, to go and be a spectator because it's it's the best teams in Canada, isn't it? And um, you're never going to get better curling than, than what you could do at the Olympic trials, as you say. And um, it shows who can control that pressure as well. And, and of course, like it's... If, if i was canadian that'd be one of my my dreams would be to play the olympic trials but unfortunately that's that's never going to happen but for these guys to to be able to play in a stadium with with that amount of fans the amount of coverage they get um, must be an, a very very special special feeling but um of course if i could i would play <laughs> um but that that's that's not going to happen unfortunately
0: how about you, Bruce? Is it fair to say that you would uh, like the opportunity to compete at an event like the Canadian Trials, uh, an event with such great crowds and where the pressure is such that we often see some of the world's top curlers make uncharacteristic mistakes along with the usual terrific shots?
3: I would love to play the Trials. Like I think it would be one of the best events to play just because the atmosphere, like you're saying, um, it would be like definitely one of the biggest events to play. Uh, we, unfortunately, this week couldn't watch much of it because we were playing our championships at the same time. And when we actually found out that the uh, trials and the Europeans were actually clashing, we were so good because we, we would normally try and like stay up and watch a lot of the trials. But, you know, competition kind of came first for us this week, So or last week even. Um, I think like we managed to watch maybe one game a day because the 9pm uh, or our 9pm was like your first draw. So we managed to watch a few games uh, throughout the week and uh, just kind of watching those games was exciting for us because the even with the uh, reduced numbers in the crowds, it was um, you could kind of feel the, the tension and um, the excitement from all the fans and even the players. Like, as you were saying, there was a few shots missed that you would never see uh, those kind of people miss. So um, I guess the the kind of event that the trials is, it just kind of puts that extra wee bit of pressure on to all the, all these athletes that are playing in the trials.
0: And finally, Bruce, uh, you'll be one of only a couple of athletes to play multiple events in Beijing, uh, at least in the sport of curling, as you will represent uh, Great Britain in both men's play and mixed doubles, along with partner Jennifer Dodds. How pumped are you about playing in both events, and are you perhaps just a little bit concerned about having to maintain the focus and energy required to play in two disciplines at the same Olympics?
3: Well, I, I think it's actually a great opportunity, not only for me and Jen to play the mixed doubles, but also for me to get kind of onto the ice before a lot of the other kind of uh, male players when I come to play the men's event. Um, It kind of gives me a wee bit more uh, time to settle into that kind of environment, I suppose. So um, as much as I'm excited to play both events, I I really think it's going to be a great um, thing for uh, me to kind of settle into and to have two opportunities at medals is always going to be, I'm I'm going to grab it with both hands and run.
0: My final guest this week is 2010 Olympic silver medalist and TSN broadcaster Cheryl Bernard, who joined me to discuss the 2021 Olympic trials, which she covered from the TSN booth alongside Vic Router and Russ Howard. Cheryl, you and the TSN team broadcast several events from the Calgary bubble last year when there was no one in the stands, obviously. Tell me what it was like in Saskatoon with an actual crowd cheering on the competitors, especially at an event as important at the trials. It must have been fun to be back to what was a relatively normal scene for such an important curling event.
4: Well, I think you could see it by the players and the performance and the level, the teams that really uh, play for the crowds. You know, you talk about the Jacobs and the Gooshes and the Jennifer Jones and, you know, Anderson's team, they just embrace that. And it kind of propels you along and gives you that energy. And even for the three of us in the booth, like it was, it was so hard sometimes to get so excited about shots because there wasn't that that hum of the crowd or that cheer when somebody made a great shot. I, I remember at one point when Dunstone made this great shot and the crowd cheered and Russ and Vic and I looked at each other because it was like a foreign sound. So, you know, for all these athletes, they're here to perform and they want, uh, you know, to be on that big stage and they want the cheering and the fans and the support behind them. So I really do think that it helped the level of play and the enthusiasm and the excitement and even from us in the booth.
0: <laughs> now, as someone who has experienced the trials, uh, Cheryl and has had success there. Can you try and put into words just how nerve wracking the whole week is, but especially early in the week when teams are still trying to figure out the ice, the rocks, and still looking to find their groove?
4: Yeah, it's it's so hard to explain. And you really, um, well, you don't try to downplay it as a team coming in. You really have to face up to the fact that you're going into a massive event and it's very important the intensity is high. There's no second prize. I mean, even at a Scotty's or a Breyer, I know it's not the best second prize, but there's a silver and a bronze medal. There's nothing here. And if you win, you get to go home with, well, in my opinion, a life-changing experience. Um, yeah, and, it, and the other big thing that people don't realize is the intensity is so high because the round Robin is short. Every game feels like a final, every game, and there's no room for error. So, You're trying to play loose, but you're tight because you can feel the importance of this event. And even for us watching the players, there's not the normal kind of joking around between ends. There's it's it's more subdued and teams really know what's on the line. And, you know, I and and I guess for a lot of these teams, what you have to do is you have to accept, you can't really brush it under a rug and say this isn't important. You really, you're not gonna fool yourself, but it's learning how to play when it means so much to you that's that's the secret in sport for any sport is when it means so much to you you have to learn how to play you know under those lights and under that pressure and under that intensity and I think you saw with the two teams that won that's exactly what happened
0: now the trials have a way of exposing teams that arrive at the event, not playing in peak form. That said, how surprised were you to see both reigning Canadian championship teams, team Anderson and team Botcher struggle early on in the week, even though team Anderson did pick it up in the second half of the week before losing in the tiebreaker.
4: Yeah. You know, I, I am absolutely surprised. There's no doubt. Botcher and Anderson never would I have guessed. And, um, but I, I think what I saw happen and, and it makes a lot of sense because I saw it at the Olympics in Pan Ching with Holman's team is it was the teams that had a first loss that couldn't dig themselves out. And it was the team that had the most, maybe not the most, but a significant amount of expectation and pressure placed on them because of their performance in the last couple of years. And I think for some reason, that first loss just sets you back and now you're scrambling. And I think it's how you handle it. You, you start to kind of panic almost with one, with a first game loss and it's so hard to get back and maybe you push a little harder, the second game, and then another loss comes in. And that's really all I can explain um, as to why those teams, because they're incredible teams. they are current Canadian champions and, and simply put, it is sport, too. That is a tough, tough field. There's going to be some unbelievably good teams go home with bad records.
0: Now, speaking of teams having trouble overcoming an early loss, Cheryl, uh, one team that struggled early in most of the week, for that matter, was Team Holman. I wonder if the early losses in Saskatoon against teams they would have been favored to beat may have been even more impactful for uh, Team Holman because it may have left the team feeling like they had little to no wiggle room left against some of the other top teams in the field later on in their draw.
4: Yeah. I, you know, I think that's, that's well said. And what I think happens is it's, it's when you lose to teams that are ranked lower than you and no disrespect to those teams, but you have it in your mind that that, and, and nobody assumes it, but you do have it in your mind that there's, there should be a win. Now it is a sport and it is curling and losses can come up, but it seems like that first game to win against a lower seated team or to lose against a lower seated team really sets teams back and off kilter. And, uh, you know, I think let's say home and loss to uh, Anderson the first game or Jones. I agree. I think it's a different mindset. You, you go, okay, well, that's one of the, sh- the games. It would have been a 50-50 whether we win it or not. So we'll take the loss on this one. Well, now our next game we'll go out and we'll beat Anderson, And so it'll even out. But when you lose against a lower-ranked team, I think that starts to set off some alarm bells. And players can't justify it in their own mind. And, and I think that's the difficulty
0: you <laughs> I've heard from many curlers and from athletes in other sports, for that matter, Cheryl, that once play begins and they find themselves in the rhythm of the game or the competition, they don't really feel the pressure anymore. That said, at the curling trials, we often see players missing shots that they would likely make in most other games and events. I don't want to overdo the subject of the pressure associated with the trials, but is it fair to say that the trials might be the one event where it is difficult for players to forget about what is at stake, even once they are in the flow of the game?
4: Yeah, I would, I would agree. I, I think what happens is, you know, very capable players that don't miss draws and don't throw rocks to the rings. Um, they're not in the moment. And I know that's overly used, but I, I love the saying, you know, be where your feet are. And, and you really need to be because in such a high intensity event and, and really it's in every event, you need to be present for the throw you're making. You need to be a hundred percent committed to the shot. You can't be thinking ahead and unfortunately, sport and curling most certainly almost taunts you to look ahead. You know, you put the score up and you're down two and you put the, the trials logos all over the place and you see other teams are intense and it's almost impossible not to think ahead. So you can do that. But the key to it is bringing your mind back to your shot and 100% commitment and focus. And sometimes that's what I think happened. And I am you know no sports psychologist but at times i just think the player wasn't in that moment and wasn't focused and you know it's funny it's what curling is about is really trying to get your mind in the right space at the right time and and what is unique about our game and and very unique is that there's so much time to think you you it's like golf that walk between holes when you make or miss a shot can be almost unsettling and you need to have a real strong mental uh, capacity to be able to bring your mind back and have self-talk, positive self-talk after a miss, um, and, and then focus on the next shot. And it is long and it's grinding. And I think it depends on some of the space where players are when they come into the event.
0: I want to take you back to the second tiebreaker on Saturday uh, when Anderson or Team Aynerson was playing Team McCarville. Uh, Cheryl, Kerry had a draw to win the game and threw the rock through the rings. Had the ice changed a little at that point in the day or was it simply another example of a player perhaps having a little bit too much adrenaline pumping in a high pressure moment?
4: Yeah, I I think a little bit of both, Frank, because I think the ice did change. The ice was great. So I I will say that first, Um, but ice changes. That's what happens with ice and you always will get uh, the slide path coming down a little bit in a game. And, and so then now I go back to the focus um, and the communication with your team. Do you know what the spot is doing? Do you know how quick it's going to curl and get into the slide path? And, so and sometimes it's missed. It's missed because you didn't believe it or you haven't seen that yet or you just didn't read it the right way. And I think that's all that happened. Maybe a little bit of pressure with Anderson because they had to come through tiebreakers and, you know, and probably I see in Team Anderson a team that when they're feeling really confident, they get on a roll and they're almost impossible to beat. But if there's any kind of doubt and they they had been a bit up and down through the week that one miss or can really kind of set you back on your heels. And I I think that was what was tough for them. But in the end, she bounced back.
0: Now, I want to skip ahead to the women's final between Team Flurry and Team Jones. Uh, it was a decent game over the first eight ends, uh, but it's certainly picked up in drama, stress, and intensity over those final three ends. I want to specifically take you back, Cheryl, to the shot that Jen Jones, arguably the best woman curler ever, missed to win the game in the 10th end, which gave Team Flurry another chance. Can you take me back to that moment and what the atmosphere was like in the building after watching a player of her stature miss a shot that Jen Jones would otherwise make, 90. 90- out of 100 times in any other normal curling event that's not the olympic trials
4: yeah she does it was uh, you know obviously a surprise i think to all of us sitting in the booth and i think very much a surprise to uh flurry's team because i they had pretty much conceded that jen had won it but like you know sport and pressure and wanting it you know i i'd always we'd had some conversations before this event to say who has more pressure the teams that have been to the olympics and know on the line what's on the line so that would be a jennifer jones or the teams that have never been and want it so bad and i think at that exact moment when jen threw that last shot i think it was just that it was i have a chance to be a two-time olympian and go back and whether it's subliminal or not it's there in your mind and i think you try to make the shot and you don't throw at the broom and maybe a little soft and It took off. I thought she was going to hold it. I thought halfway down she had it, but it just kept curling and rolled out just a little too far.
0: Can you tell me about what the challenge would have been like for both teams uh, after after that 10th in, when they both had to recapture their composure, following jen's miss Uh, that must not have been easy for either team i think of team flurry who likely thought they obviously thought they had lost the game to team jones and it also couldn't have been easy for team jones to play in that 11th and they must have been deflated after such an unexpected miss by a player of uh, jones's caliber who'd made a shot like that to win games you know countless times during her career
4: it's it's more than difficult it's it's you have to be so self-aware at that moment because you really need to know what do I have to do to get myself back to perform because you've now gone to the future the minute like like Flurry thought they lost and Jen thought they won and so and the whole thing about sport and pressure events is to not go there yet both of them went there and then had to dial it back and I I can't imagine what that took for both teams because I don't care which one you were it was unbelievably difficult to get back there and we all heard Jen's quote, you know, I would never forgiven myself had we lost that game. And I can't even imagine for her how that was playing in her mind as she played that extra end. It, it's so, you know, again, that's why these players and athletes do the mental training and the focus and all the things they do, because for those moments to gather yourself and be able to have that um, the grit to come back and complete an end and try not to think ahead. And I think both teams did exceptionally well in the 11th end. And you know what, Jen made a great come around draw. Um, You know, there's a pressure, there's a player who just missed a shot to go to the Olympics. And she came up with a, just as big of a shot to go to the Olympics in the 11th end. And I thought Tracy actually had made her last one until you know, it curled halfway down the sheet when they weren't thinking it was going to. And there's the game and there it was over. It was I felt like I'd curled for 11 ends when we were done broadcasting that game. It was exhausting.
0: Now, I just want to touch briefly on the last tone by Tracy Fleury. Had the ice changed a little at that point, Cheryl, or was it simply a case of her missing the shot if only by a small margin?
4: Yeah, you know, I personally thought Tracy would throw a bit of a different shot. First of all, that intern was curling all game. So we had noticed it. Um, and I thought she would go probably to what I would consider her strength. And that would be just a, you know, an intern come around tap back, maybe with back eight weight. Um, so I was a bit surprised when they put the broom down in the tight ice. And then I realized that they weren't throwing, you know, a back eight weight. They were throwing back line to hack. And that is a tricky shot. That's the problem is you don't know. I think you know what the draw will do and you know what a full hit will do, but it's that in-between weight that can be really difficult to put the broom down in the right spot. And in my opinion, she just under iced it. She didn't give herself enough because when she let it go, nobody jumped on it. So I thought, oh, it's going to be okay with that weight. But then when it started to curl, they had no chance of holding it. So you know, I mean, hindsight is twenty twenty. I just really expected her to play a different style of shot because it probably would be easier to put the broom down.
0: I kind of feel about asking you this question, Cheryl, but I think you can provide as much uh, or as good a perspective as just about anybody because you have went through a similar situation back in uh, the gold medal game at the 2010 Olympics in Vancouver, missing your final shot by the slimmest of margins. Uh, I know you can't speak for Tracy, but how many times do you believe Tracy Florey might re-throw that last rock of the trials final in our head in the coming days, weeks, and months?
4: <laughs> I I can't speak for Tracy, but I can give you a pretty good example. It's, uh, what, 12 years after our Olympic gold medal game loss, and I still now and then re-throw that shot. And And it's not because I have regrets. It's not. It's because... It's a shot that I'm (laughs) sometimes even when I go practice and throw practice routes, I show I throw that double and I make that double. And um, I think all competitive players will look back on a big, you know, missed shot and, and she threw it well. So that's what I think she can always go back on is I threw it the best I could and maybe I didn't have the broom right in the in the right spot but I threw it well I didn't cave under the pressure and that's what I would tell Tracy as her coach or as a friend Um, you know and and I have the same comments from the 2010 Olympics and my final miss to to win a gold medal is I threw it well I threw it the best I could I had played under pressure for 10 days uh, so did Tracy and I made my team and our country proud so I hope that she's got the right people around her to get her to that place and remind her of all those things because they were brilliant all week.
0: Now, Cheryl, I've heard a lot of people describe the men's final at the trials between Team Gushu and Team Jacobs as a bit boring and uh, as a defensive struggle, if you will. Granted, there weren't as many rocks in play as there might be at a regular tour event. Is it fair to say that part of the reason for the low score in the men's final wasn't so much the fact that it was a boring game or that it was a super defensive struggle? It was just the fact that both teams were playing well and not giving their opponents many chances to generate a big end.
4: Yeah, I think I I was not surprised at the game because I think those are two of the most defensive-minded skips out there. Now, I say that with all respect because, first of all, defense seems to win championships most of the time, but it's not that they won't play. They will, but they're very, very aware of when to open up the center when it gets messy, and a lot of teams wait too long, and Brad Jacobs and Brad Gushu do not. They will open it up the minute it's not looking good, Brad Gushu, all he wants is to make sure he has got one of two draw paths to score. And so that's when you get those kind of games where people are setting up angles, but then there are two skips that open it up. Now, maybe if Brad Gushu was playing Kevin Cooey, Kevin will wait a lot longer to open it up. You kind of look at them as a more offensive team, which is not the best description. I just think when they choose to to switch gears – um, is a little bit later than when Brad Jacobs and Brad Gushu choose to switch gears. So, you know, I was not surprised at what the game was like. Um, and, and I think that's the style of game they play. And you know what? Both those teams needed to, you know, dance with the one that brought them because that's what got them to that final. So I, I wasn't surprised. I think that's the way you play, most certainly against each other. And it was going to be a shot here or there that won that game.
0: And finally, Cheryl, both Team Jones and Team Gu have multiple players that have competed in and won gold medals at the Olympics. Do you believe that the experience might even be more of a benefit for both the men's and women's teams in Beijing, considering the additional pressure that will be placed on their shoulders to reach the podium, especially after Canada failed to win a medal in either the men's or women's events at the last Olympics in Pyeongchang?
4: Yeah, it might help both of them that they have gold medals in their pocket. It might. I, I think... I think what's happening and and I I hope a lot of people listen and, and, and understand that we have to quit as a country expecting that every team we send will go in there and stand on the podium because it's almost a disrespect then to the rest of the country who is getting better and better and better and they are grooming teams individually for Olympics only and you know, we don't do that because we're trying to still create depth in our country and we're trying to create grassroots curling. And so we don't handpick a team and train them for a year and then send them off to the Olympics. And I don't know that I'd ever be a fan of that. Um, But maybe it's because I'm old and I have seen the game this way for years. And I think how we do it is really good for the depth in our country. Um, But I just, I I really have been to two Olympics and have felt the pressure for our team and felt the immense pressure on Holman's team. And I think what hurts our teams is expectation and fans. And, and I think if we can move away from that expectation and just cheer them on to do their best at the event, um, that's what they'll do. So that for me uh, is the bigger thing than yes, they've got medals and they probably aren't going to feel as much much pressure, but. I mean, you've got Jeff Walker and Brett Gallant and you've got Jocelyn. They're going to feel it. They're going to want a medal. And so that's going to be felt on the team. And and I don't know that that's actually a bad thing. But I I do hope Canadians, Frank, will at some point just step back a little bit and ease up the pressure um, that these players feel. They already have enough self-imposed pressure. Um, They certainly don't need more from the outside. and, And let's just cheer them on and hope they do well and have a great experience.
0: And that does it for this week's episode. A big thank you to Brad Gushu, Eve Muirhead, Bruce Mowat, and Cheryl Bernard. Also, don't forget to check out our partners and friends in the Curling Podcast Network, the Two Girls in the Game Podcast, and the Curling Legends Podcast. I'm Frank Rock, and you're listening to the From the Hack Curling Podcast, part of the Curling News and Sports Illustrated Partnership.